Spider-Man Far From Home, even with a plot that builds off the emotional heft of Endgame, another mediocre villain, heavy dose of Disney Channel-level romance, too much clunky shtick, made this feel qualitatively more like a middleweight contender. That from Brian Lowry of CNN.com, his review of Spider-Man Far From Home, one of the films we're reviewing this time on Cinephile. Thank you, as always, for checking us out. Uh, my man Joe currently on vacation back in Puerto Rico, so uh, thanks to Patrick stepping in as producer this week. Uh, lots of great stuff coming in, including the fact that Art of Self-Defense, which is a new film in limited release opening this Friday. We'll be speaking to the director coming up momentarily. Also, The Bada Binge now finds us uh, enmeshed in Season 2, Episodes 5 through 8. And because we're talking about Spider-Man, this is a, a doozy here from Mount Rushmore. The, the, the Mount Rushmore, the top Marvel movies. So I know this will uh, incite many, many people, and uh, I'll do my best to try to crack the top four, although it's not... Um, my forte, necessarily, superhero movies, as those who know me are well aware. So maybe my brother will chime in afterwards. By the way, I'm speaking from my brother's Ishan's house here in Wisconsin. On vacation here, Rich Cook would not give me the week off. So here I am in Wisconsin uh, by my lonesome. Uh, the boys out right now at the Milwaukee Zoo. That's what I'm missing out here for Cinephile, just to tell all of you about Spider-Man Far From Home. That's right, Spider-Man swinging back into theaters. Uh, by now, a familiar tale, but I thought the reboot worked well, which is the most recent Spider-Man, Spider-Man Homecoming. Uh, Tom Holland, the British actor, does a nice job playing Peter Parker, because I think the key with these movies is, you have to remember this guy is essentially a geek. He's a high school adolescent nerd, a guy who's pining after MJ, but he's only 16. He's just a kid, right? He does not have the darkness of Batman, does not have the, the sarcasm, does not have the riches of Iron Man, etc. He's a nerdy guy who has these spidey senses that start tingling and sends webs out of his wrists. And so um, I think the film Far From Home, again, fits well into that ethos of the fact that he is still high school adolescence. And a lot of the story focuses on him pining after MJ and the fact that he and his classmates are taking a road trip. In fact, a trip overseas, I should say, European vacation as they go over to Venice and England. And that's where all the accident takes place. And listen, at heart, Peter Parker is just a guy who wants to get with MJ and have a good time. But instead, he's feeling the forces of evil and the forces of nature all around him, and that means he's going to get pressed back into battle. Nick Fury shows up in his hotel room. Of course, Samuel L. Jackson tells him, we need you. The world's in danger. Four massive elemental creatures, each representing earth, air, water, and fire, are emerging from a hole torn in the universe. And so he's going to put on the spidey suit again. Except this time we got a twist. Beck, he thinks, is a friend of his, Quentin, played by Jake Gyllenhaal, but instead he ends up being Mysterio, and Mysterio ends up being the nemesis who, if you're looking for a source of motivation, this is an old-fashioned grudge match. He's upset at Tony Stark because one of his innovations he coined as barf, just mockingly referred to it as, and essentially took the money, took the fame, and now uh, this is Mysterio's chance to, to wreak his revenge. And he's got nothing personal against Peter Parker, as he puts it, but... He wants to be the guy who is running the world, and so that's where the story goes from. Obviously, lots of symbolism here and a lot of nods to Iron Man, so a spoiler-free alert because now this world knows that Iron Man's gone, and you've got some nice touching scenes between uh, Peter Parker and John Favreau showing up as happy since 
as anyone knows, that uh, Iron Man was his best friend. So he's obviously the connective tissue to Iron Man and the fact that with Tony gone now, Peter Parker has to save the day. John Watts returns as director for the film, which is about two hours and ten minutes in length. I thought it started off slow, kind of sets up the story as far as Peter and his friends being overseas. But then once uh, Mysterio reveals himself to be the nemesis, then all of a sudden the story really gets going. Again, cutting-edge special effects with the way CGI is now in major pictures is as good as it gets. So... If you're looking for a similar blockbuster, I really think Spider-Man Far From Home delivers on multiple levels. It has an engaging, winning cast, not only in Holland, but as I mentioned, Gyllenhaal, I thought, made for a a very good villain. Obviously, he's been a critically acclaimed actor for a while, so this is his chance to get rich, cash that check, big budget film, and Gyllenhaal delivers, showing, as I mentioned, the fact that this character is bitter and uh, neglectful over the past. Zendaya is fine as the... um, Female love interest. You get Marissa Tomei showing up as a little bit of a cameo. Esme and Sam Jack as Nick's Fury. I mean, obviously, he can do that that role in his sleep. So as far as the latest Spider-Man installment, I'm going to give it three and a half Maple Leafs because it hits on multiple levels and, of course, sets the stage for what's going to happen after that. Spoiler-free review, but I will tell you twice in the credit sequence, you should pay attention because there's a couple of things that show up there. We thankfully were told that by our server here in Wisconsin. So, yeah, I think that by now you all know when it comes to Marvel movies, don't get up when in the the credits start coming and this time there's a couple of sequences uh, which has some information as well so Spider-Man Far From Home it's bound to make a ton of money Uh, fun facts by the way Peter's passport lists August 10th as his birthday birthday excuse me Spider-Man's first appearance was in Amazing Fantasy number 15 released August 10th 1962 in real life Tom Holland's birthday is June 1st also Samuel L. Jackson's third consecutive MCU appearance as Nick Fury following Captain Marvel and Avengers Endgame This is also the first time an MCU character, Marvel Comic Universe, has appeared in three films in one year. And this is also the first live-action appearance of Mysterio. Now, my brother Zeeshan, a huge Spider-Man fan, he tells me Mysterio is not even one of his top ten villains, but he thought he was pretty good in the movie. So I guess that's credit to the guys adapting it, that Mysterio, not great on the page, much better on the screen. And also, for all you Kirby Enthusiasm fans, yes, that's right, J.B. Smoove is in the movie. Cameo appearance, he provides a little bit of comic relief, a couple one-liners. He is Mr. Dell, one of the teacher's chef these kids around. All right, let's move on to some entertainment news. Alfred E. Newman, what, me worry? Yes, now the time is to worry. Unfortunately, as Mad Magazine reportedly shutting down publication of new material, upcoming ninth issue of the current volume of Mad will be its last issue on newsstands, the following tenth issue available only via subscription, and the direct market will be the last to feature original material. After that, the magazine will feature reprinted material with new covers. The source also said the magazine will be publishing its regular end-of-year special. I myself was not a big Mad Magazine Acolyte, but I'm aware of their popularity, and certainly it's notable that you get more and more of these publications. I've spoken in the past how much I love Entertainment Weekly. Disappointed the fact that's now monthly. I'm sure those who follow Mad Magazine can feel the pain as well. Russell Crowe explained why he turned in a boatload of money to star in The Lord of the Rings. He was on Howard Stern last week. He's uh, promoting this new show he's got. I believe it's on Showtime. It's the Roger Ailes uh, documentary, or some might say mockumentary, but apparently he's very good in it. The Loudest Voice, yes, that's right. That's on Showtime right now. So uh, Crow was on Stern promoting that show, and he's talked about the fact that the role in Lord of the Rings is too similar to the one he already had assigned in Gladiator, but it also sounds like he just knows when he wasn't wanted. I don't think Peter Jackson wanted to be on that film, he told Stern bluntly. Crow made it clear that Jackson was forced to talk to him by the movie's producers, who are presumably not super excited to be funding an extremely expensive trilogy of films starring the leads from North, The Goonies, and Apt Pupil. 
or maybe hoping to pick up a bit of that L.A. confidential heat courtesy of Crow. Crow noted he was forced into talking to me because there was a moment in time when everyone wanted me in everything. I'm talking to him on the phone. It's like, hey, I don't think he even knows what I've done. I just knew that my instinct was that he had somebody else in mind, which turned out to be Vigo, and he should be allowed to hire the actor who he wants. Crow also didn't seem too put out by the financial ding that passing on the part represented. He was reportedly offered 10% of the film's back-end gross, which would have come out to something like $100 million. Joking that I never thought about it, only in situations like interviews where people are polite and kind enough to add SHIT up for me. <laughs> He's got enough money. He's doing fine. Also, Kevin Cautious says Princess Diana wanted to be in The Bodyguard 2. He said there was once a sequel in the works and Princess Diana would have made her acting debut. So who could have imagined what that would have been like? But of course, very sad news of Princess Diana's passing. But you know what? The Bodyguard, a movie that certainly endures for people who love those romantic comedies. All right. That's your review of Spider-Man Far From Home and... Some entertainment news. It's now time for our special guest. That's right, a new film that's going to be in theaters, limited release this Friday. Riley Stearns here to cinephile the art of self-defense opening up in limited release this week. I'll be expanding to more theaters on the 19th. Riley, thanks so much for coming on Cinephile today. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks Thanks for having me. It's, it's a real honor to be on here. Well, it's a terrific movie, and I, what I really love, first and foremost about it, is the tone of it. And I think dark comedies are especially difficult to pull off because <laughs> you can't go too dark because then people go, I don't understand where the comedy is. And you can't go too light or too broad because then I think you're kind of, um, you're not really playing well to the genre. And I think in this case, for those who are unaware what the film is about, it's after a brutal mugging, a man takes up karate to better defend himself, but soon falls under the spell of the leader. So Jesse Eisenberg plays the lead. We'll talk about the, the performances in a second, Riley, but I just want to ask, like I said, about the tone specifically, how are you able to navigate through writing, through shooting, through editing the right tone of a dark comedy? Well, it's funny that you say that you can't go too dark and you can't go too broad because in a weird way, I feel like the movie does tend to go very dark and it does at times go pretty broad. And I think that it's, it's an overall tone you're looking for. Uh, the scene to scene stuff is also important and the, the line to line is, is important. But it, for me, it's like an overall average that I'm kind of like trying to hit and uh, yeah, I, it's the kind of tone that I like to watch in films. It's the type of stuff that I feel most confident and comfortable making. But it doesn't mean that it's easy. It's definitely a challenge. It's a it's a tightrope of sorts. And uh, I kind of just trust my instincts, and I trust that if I push something uh, far enough in one direction, it's it's it, it, the humor can come from that. And so a lot of this movie. Uh, the humor comes from just how over the top and, and insane it gets while the characters are still handling everything at face value and, and saying everything as if it's fact. Like, that's funny to me. So, <laughs> yes, it's a, it's a tightrope, but it's, it's a fun tightrope to, to walk. No, absolutely. Um, I'm just curious about martial arts for you specifically. How well-versed are you in karate and the whole martial arts scene? Uh, I actually do ju- Brazilian jiu-jitsu. I've been doing that for six years now. Uh, I'm a purple belt. I train five days a week, at least two hours a day when I go in. I compete. I, I, it's, it's beyond a hobby for me now. It's, it's part of my life. And so uh, I knew that I wanted to set something in this world of martial arts, but I also have no delusions that uh, jiu-jitsu is this well-known thing. Uh, and I, it, like, For example, anytime I go home and visit relatives, it's inevitable that I get the question, how's that karate going? Uh, people tend to just think of when you think of karate, it's just, a, you know what that is. And so I, I really wanted to just throw out like a specificity of uh, what martial art it was and just say, like, let's just go karate. Everyone knows what that is. But then incorporating different things as well from other forms of martial arts and, and really not making it a martial arts 
film, but making it a film that happens to take place in the world of martial arts. Yeah, I, I knew that you must have some background in it because there's specifics to it. And just even as a filmmaker, I'm sure you wouldn't want to have anybody calling you out for, um, you know, just a lack of specificity or a lack of authenticity. I could clearly tell the way that uh, Alessandro Nivola's character talks about certain things. It's like just even the, the simple premise of, um, you know, kicking with your punch or, uh, you know, punching with your kick. I mean, is that something that's rooted in karate or something you've heard before? No, it was, it was honestly just funny to me. Uh, it's like, I didn't want it to feel like a McDojo. <laughs> I didn't want it to feel like a McDojo type of thing where he's selling this thing that doesn't work. I believe in the in the world of the film, the way that I'm going about it, I, I want that dojo to actually be legit. I want him to be teaching things that in, in the world of that dojo work. But I also didn't want it to feel like totally like real life. So the kick with your fist and punch with your foot thing really just was a way of saying, this is a little different than the, the world that we live in. It's a little, a little hyper real, but not so much that it feels like ridiculous, like utterly ridiculous. And then you get to kind of play around with that joke and bring it back a couple of times in the movie. And that was just kind of me having fun with it. Well, I definitely had fun for good, uh, good reason. Uh, let's talk specifically about Jesse here, Riley, and, and casting him. You know, obviously he's a talented actor. You've seen how good he's been um, in movies like The Squid and the Whale and Social Network and Zombieland. Uh, and here I feel like it's, it's, it's a smart way of playing with his persona in that you know, first you see this guy who's kind of lonely and nerdy and he's being pushed to the edges and he's, you know, he's got that meek kind of hushed tone to him. And of course, he got a little dog that he's close to and can't really uh, mesh well with his characters. Um, but, you know, he's not the only one who, who needs to kind of unleash himself. And I think you did a good job of kind of melding, like I said, what I think people might expect Jesse Eisenberg's persona to be or at least what he's appeared to be in movies and now to kind of unleash the beast. And I would imagine as an actor, he'd be happy to latch on to a role which allowed him to stretch. Was that the case? Yeah, I, I, the, the fun thing for this movie for me was that I wanted to make a film set in the world of martial arts, but I also wanted to subvert the, audience expect the audience's expectation of where a film like that might go. And so I think part of the casting of Jesse was saying, I think people are going to expect a certain type of movie and when it takes its left turn, when that when we pull that like proverbial rug out from under the audience's feet halfway through the film, they have no idea where it's going to go from there. And it really was just like telling telling the audience maybe expect one thing, but then uh, surprise them with the other. And and to Jesse's credit, he really embraced that. We we really got to see Casey kind of like I don't know be influenced and informed by the weird and uh, very destructive environment around him. And his character kind of like takes on these traits, but never fully becomes the, that person. It's almost like he's playing a character and acting like a tough man when he's, when he's told he should be. But uh, I don't think that his character ever really fully does. And it was really fun try, trying to figure out how do we show that without feeling like too subtle or too on the nose at the same time. It, it, we really got to experiment and, and play around with the way that he played Casey. Yeah, and in many ways, one of the themes that you're really, you know, taking a dagger to here is the whole topic of, of toxic masculinity. You know, the fact that Casey, Jesse Eisenberg's character, is a 30-something guy who answers adult contemporary when asked his favorite type of music. In the meantime, Alessandro Nivola, um, he says that metal is the only type of music worth listening to. Like, it's, 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 it's a satiric uh, aspect of it, but in some ways you can actually see guys who are actually answering these kind of questions and feel that way, right? Totally. I mean, it's, it's, there's no subtlety. <laughs> like, I definitely wanted it to be a very literal thing, and I felt like that was, again, where the humor lied with me, uh, but uh, I, I also feel like it's funny that, like, 
I can't, I, like, the, the film came about as, in the sense that I wanted to do a martial arts movie, or film set in world martial arts, but I also had these very real questions and fears myself about who I was as a man and, and what does it mean to be a man in today's society. And, and this was written in 2015 at the end of that year. And obviously this conversation has been around forever, but at the same time, it wasn't at the forefront like it is now. And it really felt like we were kind of figuring out uh, this, this thing prior to Me Too coming out and, and uh, like, I, I guess this, this conversation really getting bigger and having a larger voice. Uh, and we're making our own version of something that, that I was already feeling as a personal thought and fear type of thing, but is really starting to connect with other people. So, uh, yeah, it, it, it was fun to be super overt and literal about what it means to be a man. Like you said, metal is only, that's the only music that men should listen to. Like German is more uh, masculine than French, like if you're learning a language and just like playing that up. Uh, but then those, those like on the nose ideals also are really like, which are kind of funny and, and everything. They're also undercut by this uh, also really toxic way of talking about women and sensei's beliefs on, on femininity and what it means to be a woman and, and like really just kind of making people uncomfortable with that aspect as well. Cause like there are people out there who actually believe these, these thoughts and, and ideas about women uh, and, and just kind of making fun of that being as overt as possible with these horrible things. And, and that, that was like our way of saying, like, there's no way that anyone's going to leave the movie theater thinking it's cool <laughs> to, to like disparage uh, women based on uh, uh, certain ideals or, or stereotypes or, or in, by the same token, no way anyone's going to leave thinking it's super cool to be like a man because you put people down and, and you listen to certain music and, and all that. It, it, again, literal, being literal was, was my goal. And, uh, and that's, that, that was fun to just like get to kind of, yeah, be so direct about something that that is what makes it funny. Yeah, and speaking of female characters, Imogen Potts, I'm not sure you pronounce her first name, I'm guessing that's uh, how you pronounce it, but her character is, is really interesting because, again, you're right, you're, you're poking fun at toxic masculinity and these ideals, and then she's this woman who gets sent to the boiler room to go stretch because you can't stretch with the other guys, but then Casey gets sent in there because, well, he's kind of a masculine and kind of feminine himself, and her character is interesting as well. What were you trying to kind of say through her character amidst all these macho guys? Well, I think it's just, uh, I mean, I've trained with women in jiu-jitsu who are way more technical and way more, uh, I, I don't know, like skilled at jiu-jitsu than men who are twice their size and can totally destroy them in sparring. But somebody on the streets would look at a woman and a man standing, that same woman and that same man standing right beside each other, and their preconceived notion would be that, oh, well, that guy's probably tougher than that girl. And it's just, total bullshit. Like I, I really wanted to just see, again, the literal movie, it's very black and white. There's no gray and wanted to kind of confront that head on, have no questions, if, ands, or buts about the fact that Imogen's character, Anna is by far the coolest and toughest person at the dojo. Um, and do it in a way where it's kind of expected. Like you've seen this before, you've seen the movie where the guy meets the girl and he's like, Oh, there's a girl. And like, I'm going to be better at this thing than her. And then she ends up kicking his ass at whatever sport that is or whatever, whatever topic it is. Um, and you've seen that done a million times, but then go dark with it. Like learn about her past, learn about what made her who she is, learn about why she's closed off and, and really kind of bring up some, some topics that uh, again, not with like, not in a way that makes people feel like it's a message film or I'm preaching to them or trying to teach them a lesson, 
but talk about something that hopefully will bring up conversation after the fact. And it's not a film that has any answers, I don't think, but it's a film that at least uh, it, it talks about things head on in a way that hopefully when people are leaving the theater, there's no way that you can get around talking about them. I, I can't talk to a guy about martial arts and martial arts movies without asking about the Karate Kid. So lastly, your thoughts on the Karate Kid? Did it influence you? Do you like it? Is it dated? Where, what are your opinions on Pat Morita and Ralph Macchio and Friends? Well, I mean, as a kid, I saw the movie and I loved it. And uh, I, I wouldn't say that it influenced this movie in any way other than that's kind of like the, the expected route that I think people think that this movie is going to take. And especially when they see Jesse on the poster and they've seen the trailer, which hints at the darkness, but it doesn't really show it. Uh, I, I want people to come in thinking that they know that type of movie and that they know exactly where it's going to go. They think it's going to be like the, the sports movie that, that sets up like uh, a character in, in a way that makes them fail and then builds them back up. And in the end they conquer all. And in a weird way, like that is the movie, but it takes so many different turns than you'd be expecting and uh, yeah, I haven't seen Cobra Kai. I hear it's great. I've got a friend who works on it in the edit room as an editor. And uh, I, I, there are other movies that kind of deal with topics that we're dealing with in this movie, but in different ways. But uh, it, for me, it was important to kind of make my own version of that. And that's this. Well, certainly, I think it's a fantastic movie. The Art of Self-Defense, which is in limited release this Friday. Check it out. It opens nationwide on the 19th. Uh, Riley Stearns, can't thank you enough for the time, man. Honestly, it's a, a really enjoyable film. I'm glad I got to see it. I hope as many people see it as possible. Uh, let them know where to see it. Is there a website, Twitter, Instagram? Where's the best way to find out where it's playing? Yeah, I mean, probably the easiest way to to keep up to date is, is follow our official account at T-A-O-S-D movie on Instagram or film, one of the two. One that comes after you write T-A-O-S-D, it's going to pop up, I guarantee you. But uh, yeah, we, we've got um, uh, theaters, all of our Alamo Drafthouse theaters, uh, or all of the Alamo Drafthouse theaters in the country are going to be playing it the second weekend. And uh, yeah, hopefully there's a place near you that you'll be able to find it. Out, uh, find it. Fantastic, Riley. Thanks so much, man. Best of luck with the film. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Uh, y'all have a good day. Hiring is challenging, but there's one place you can go where hiring is simple, fast, and smart. A place where growing businesses connect qualified candidates. That place is ZipRecruiter.com slash approach. ZipRecruiter sends your job to over 100 of the web's leading job boards, but they don't stop there. With their powerful matching technology, ZipRecruiter scans thousands of resumes to find people with the right experience and invites them to apply to your job. As applications come in, ZipRecruiter analyzes each one and spotlights the top candidates so you never miss a great match. ZipRecruiter is so effective that four to five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site within the first day. And right now, my listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free at this exclusive web address, ZipRecruiter.com slash approach. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash A-P-P-R-O-A-C-H. ZipRecruiter.com slash approach. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. 
the trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality. Mount Rushmore. All right, thanks once again to Riley Stern for coming by. Let's talk now about the Marvel Mount Rushmore. That's right, superhero movies that are best of all time. God, this list feels exhaustive and at times exhausting, so I'm sure we're going to offend some people, but that's always fun. You can tweet me, CinephilePod, C-I-N-E-P-H-I-L-E pod, or, of course, A-D-N-A-N-S-V-I-R-K. We're also available on Instagram as well. Go ahead, hit us up. Let me know where I went wrong. Mount Rushmore for me of Marvel movies. I'm going to go first off with Logan, of course. I love that film from James Mangold. It's not really a superhero movie. It's even more of like a Western, which is why I'm enjoying it, because it's atypical. It's not a film which is reliant on special effects and CGI. Instead, he's telling a story of a bruised and bloody and vulnerable guy in Wolverine who's now just hanging on for his last gasp. In many ways, it's Mangold's Unforgiven, showing a character who's haunted by his past and how difficult it is to overcome those demons. I love Logan. Everything about that film, the soundtrack, the supporting performances, Patrick Stewart, Stephen Merchant, etc. So Logan, for me, is an absolute no-brainer. That's on my list for the Mount Rushmore. I'm also including Deadpool because, again, it's so different from everything else on this list. While the irreverent, original, funny, uh, R-rated, uh, dark... You name it. It's profane and vulgar and, and really smart and quick-witted, and Ryan Reynolds is perfectly cast in the movie. Talk about an excellent way that you can meld both actor and character in his persona. Reynolds does that. Deadpool felt like a brush of fresh air. Even Deadpool 2 I thought was quite entertaining, which is normally does not happen with sequels. They normally fall off by a step, but I'm going to include Deadpool as well. So Deadpool and Logan I'm including. I think I'm going to go with the original Iron Man because to me, in many ways, that was a bellwether for all these films. You know, Robert Downey Jr., again, the perfect melding of character, actor, and performance and persona as Tony Stark. It felt cutting edge at the time, uh, whip smart, very good one-liners, and unfortunately, the second one was a huge drop-off, but you know what? I'm going to include Iron Man. So Deadpool, Logan, and Iron Man are in. Here's where the battle becomes. Captain America, people love Captain America. Civil War in particular. Guardians of the Galaxy, although I'm going to dismiss that because to me I'm including Deadpool as my fun, irreverent movie. Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, I really want to include. My son Adin would say get that in there. Three times he's seen that on Netflix. Avengers Infinity War, a big, massive success. Avengers Endgame, also special as well. But you know what? I'll go with another classic from the past. I'm going to go with Spider-Man. One of the originals, that's right. 2002 with Tobey Maguire's Spider-Man, and you've got Kirsten Dunst as Mary Jane, Willem Dafoe, James Franco. For me, Spider-Man, again, uh, maybe holds some nostalgic value. And again, my brother's a big Spider-Man fan, so what the hell? I gotta get a Spider-Man movie as far as the top Marvel movies are concerned. So the honorable mentions, once again, as I say, that Mount Rushmore is Spider-Man, Deadpool, Logan, Iron Man, honorable mentions, Captain America, Civil War, Thor Ragnarok is a great one, Gardens of the Galaxy, Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, and Avengers Infinity War, Avengers Endgame perhaps for some as well. But honestly, there's just so many comic book movies. The oversaturation can be overwhelming. There's my four favorites. Let me know where I aired. The Bada Binge. 
All right, and now it's time to talk about The Sopranos' Bada Binge. We've talked in the past about season two, episodes one through four. Now we go ahead and fly through episodes five, six, seven, and eight. Five is called Big Girls Don't Cry. In many ways, it's a great season two episode. Uh, it's a terrific showcase for Michael Imperioli as Christopher and also for Furio, Federico Castelluccio's character, as you see him in this brothel rampage where he just absolutely goes bananas. Um, it's a great, great scene, and it shows why it's a thing of horrible beauty, the fact that... Tony wants him as part of his mob crew because he's just more, more vicious than the other guys. Um, also because of Furio adding him allows Tony to reorganize the crew. He's got Silvio and Polly now getting promoted. Furio and Pussy now report to him. Tony's trying to find an excuse. As he said, Fed's find an excuse. I'll do a dime for jaywalking. So he's got to reorganize his boys, which is an interesting story in the way he talks to Melfi about it. Also got some quasi-comedic value here also because you see Elliot is Melfi's therapist. That's right. Melfi needs a therapist as well. And Hesh in some ways plays a therapist to Tony. As, he's, as Tony tells him, I need you to pretend you're my therapist and just listen. Uh, Hesh thinks that there's a couple of old friends who are talking away, but instead maybe things get a little bit darker than they would have expected. Adriana gives Christopher a writing for actors class to support his screenwriting ambitions. The brief stint is written and acted with a perfect balance of empathy and absurdity, as writes Matt Zoller cites and Alan Sepawal in their valuable book, The Soprano Sessions. If you compiled his scenes as a short film, you'd have a perfect picture of who he is and the crossroads he's reached. The implication here is that being an artist means being brave enough to publicly dredge up and use your deepest emotional pain. Christopher is fine with inflicting even enduring physical pain, but he runs from the emotional kind, hiding behind hard-boiled tough guy postures that don't always suit him and lashing out physically and verbally at Adriana whenever she gets too close to the truth. There's that great scene where they're replicating Rebel Without a Cause, and maybe it's too close to comfort for Chris because his father died when he was young, and eventually he just loses his mind on the other actor in the play. And even though the acting teacher thinks that Christopher has a lot of potential, you realize there, you know what, man, you're a gangster. He can never actually be an actor in this case. So his initial attempts to uh, intimidate the brothel workers as well go awry, but as later it comes down to Mel Brooks' definition, the difference between comedy and tragedy. Tragedy is when I cut my finger. Comedy is when you fall down an open sewer and die. Tony talks about Furio's excellent work, and he says to Melfi, I wished it was me in there. And Melfi asks, giving the beating or taking it? And the scene ends before he can even answer. Interesting scene there. Uh, the Happy Wanderer is an episode I love. That's season two, episode six. It involves, that's right, Robert Patrick, T-1000, playing the gambling buddy, Davy Scatino. Tony warns him, trust me, this game is not for you. I don't want to see you get hurt. But as so many mobsters show, they take advantage and they prey on a man's vulnerabilities. That's exactly what Robert Patrick is. Uh, not only T2 Judgment Day, also David Duchovny's replacement on the original X-Files, dozens of films and TV shows, but never quite played a guy like this. Uh, a huge departure from the cold killer's authority figures he usually played, like John Hurd as Vin McKay's in season one. Patrick channels every ounce of his character's delusional, then desperate born loserdom. As you can expect to happen, he's in the game, even with Frank Sinatra Jr., as he says to Tony, what do you think? Tony goes, yeah, I see the resemblance around the eyes. He goes, oh no, what do you think about me playing in the game? <laughs> Sinatra, by the way, the younger brother of actress and singer Nancy Sinatra, musical director for his father during the last decade of his life. Uh, throughout the elder Sinatra's life, he was dogged by accusations he was too cozy with mobsters. But if his son had any misgivings about guesting on The Sopranos, he never mentioned them. Sinatra, the elder, died just eight months before season one debuted. So you've got Sinatra playing in the card game. You've got other guys there as well. And 
Davy Scatino just can't help himself, wants to be there, ends up destroying his own business because, in fact, he plays so much big ziti. Uh, that's their vernacular for all the money that they're spending. And instead, what do you do? you got to bust them out. Just like in Goodfellas, Tony takes over the sporting goods place and ends up having to just take it down. Honestly, this is really a great episode to showcase Robert Patrick uh, and his acting ability here as you see the fact that he's just completely, completely done in by his own misgivings. Even the fact that Tony says... He thinks that he's not a predator. You know, listen, he ends up taking the guy's car and tries to give it to Meadow, uh, stirring up the belief that, you know, whatever Richie's is now his, which makes an awkward sequence there with him and Meadow as well. But honestly, it's a really good scene. Uh, D-Girl, season two, episode seven, also a great one as well. This is one that shows more fun, more comedy. Um, if you love the way The Sopranos shows the behind the scenes of things, then this episode is the one for you because certainly they show how funny that these guys can be, uh, especially when they're in their environment. Like, it's not just fish out of water. It's It's... It's honestly like gangsters trying to run Hollywood, which at some point, of course, they've had involvement. But when you see Christopher there talking with John Favreau, and Favreau's playing himself as the actor-director, he's giving advice there to Alicia Witt, who he's now interested in, who's Favreau's vice president of development. And meantime, there, Christopher is actually giving advice on the actual actors in the scene. I mean, that's where it gets hilarious. He goes, oh, this is what she would call him. Here's what these guys would say. I mean, it's hilarious the fact that Chris now really shows that they've got this indie movie, which is a lesbian romantic screwball comedy starring Sandra Bernhardt and Janine Garofalo. And ends up being Chris giving them a bunch of dialect to help them. He ends up saying bucciach, which is Italian for every woman's least favorite word. <laughs> that scene alone is hilarious. And of course, he calls her a D-girl, which is a real insult. Alicia Witt, once things go bad. Uh, the last episode I just want to mention is Full Leather Jacket, season two, episode eight. This ends with an act of violence so senseless and sad it's understandable. People remember it is the one where Christopher got shot, but it's strong and understated in its own right. A tightly structured riff on rebellion and its consequences anchored to a close-up look at the dynamics of the soprano marriage when it's in sync. A real focus on Tony and Carmela, but also the fact that Richie refuses to build that wheelchair ramp for Beansy and freely shows his core loyalty to Junior and how Junior is obviously... You know, in many ways, even though he's Tony's uncle, he's a real nemesis for him as well. So in, in D-Girl, Tony, more of a uh, supporting character than the lead one here, he shows more power as well. It shows the difference of the, the patriarchal subculture and, and the fact that Carmela... You know, she's really at peace with the fact the moral compromises that her husband has to do. You know, you can say what you want about her and Jeannie Cusimano, but both of them are refusing to knuckle under. And Carmela, in this instance, the focus is trying to get Meadow into school. And the way that she tries to put the pressure on uh, Jeannie Cusimano and her twin sister, Joan, both played by Sandra Santiago, is interesting because... You know, it just shows that they're kind of cut from the same cloth. Tony uses intimidation in his own way, but so does Carmela. And when she's basically trying to say, hey, listen, can't you write a letter just to help out Carmela get into Georgetown? And then says the line, I don't think you understand. I want you to write that letter. Uh, as Matt and Alan write in their book, it's as chilling a moment as the show has given us, climaxing a scene in which a woman stops by another woman's office with only a ricotta pie and manila envelope. When Jean says Joan wrote the recommendation, after all, Carmela says, that's wonderful. Do you have a copy? Making sure Joan didn't lie. The best bit of body language in this scene belongs to Santiago. When Carmela explains, Jean, you are wonderful and stands to embrace her, Jean recoils as if she's about to be enveloped by a python, and she is. Those are the four episodes we're focusing on. Season two, episodes five through eight, The Sopranos Sessions, once again, using as a resource heavily the great, great book from Matt Zoller Seitz and Alan Sepinwall. You can check out the interview I did with them, which was on previous episodes. And of course, so many of the past episodes are all available right now through Cadence 13. 
So once again, thank you so much to listening. Uh, thanks to Riley Stern for dropping by. Check out The Art of Self-Defense in theaters. Uh, we'll be back next week here on Cinephile as we continue. Uh, Joel will be back from vacation. Subscribe, rate, review, spread the word. And until then, I'll see you at the movies. 